because it's got all these strange names and places in it. Um, and actually, it's not that complicated. It's probably just because the names are unfamiliar. So like if it was talking about sort of Paris and Kildare, we'd be fine. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and show you on the map um, some of what is going on. Uh, what we're going to hear about is a battle between, on one side, four kings, and on the other side, five kings. Um, the four kings are uh, regional kings of sort of big areas, and I'm going to call them the big four. They've got lots of land and big armies. And then uh, there's the other five kings. I'm going to call them the little kings. They're sort of kings over sort of small cities and small armies. Um, and let me just show you where they're from, if I can get this working. So this is where the, the big four are from, and we're going to hear about a guy from Elam. He's the sort of main, oh, look at that. I, I'll leave you to, great, Emma. Um, and then the, the, so that's the big four, and then the little five are sort of where these, the green um, text is, which is also over here. So this is uh, sort of near Israel, sort of south of the Dead Sea is the kind of area where the little five are from. Um, and... Let's hear the first three verses. Reading from Genesis chapter 14. At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, the Salt Sea. Um, so the battle is about to happen between the big four and the little five, and it's about to happen probably here. This is where they reckon Siddim Valley might be. So just sort of south of the, of the Dead Sea. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kedorlaomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. So before this battle, uh, the king of Elam, Kedorlaomer, um, was in charge of the whole region. And uh, the little, little kings were under him for 12 years, but they had enough and they rebelled. And so what does Kedorlaomer do? Um, he gets the big four together, he leaves home, they wouldn't have traveled across here because of the territory, they would have gone up here and then traveled down this direction to sort things out. And the next bit tells us what happened on the way to the battle between the big four and the little five. In the 14th year, Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites in Ashtaroth, Carnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shava Kiriathayim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in the Hazazon Tamar. Okay, so we're finally now at the point where the big four and the little five meet at the battle, and uh, we're going to hear about what happened in the battle and what happened after. 
Um, and also, you'll see some other important places. In fact, we, can we zoom into the next map, Emma, please? Um, so the battle's about to happen here. In Oh, it's turned itself off, has it? No, wrong way around. Um, here in the Sidon Valley. And then there's a few other places that you'll hear mentioned um, after the battle. And just notice this. Why do we need to know this? Well, it's because of how it affects Abraham and the promises of God. Thanks, Callum. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Anur, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the woman and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread with a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to honor Eshcol and Mamre. Let them have their share. Thanks so much, Callum. Um, children, just to let you know, there is a sort of coloring sheet and an activity sheet that you can get at the back if you didn't get one on the way in. Um, I'm going to ask for God's help. Let's pray to him. Our Father God, we thank you that every word we have just read together is your word, breathed out by you. You tell us it is useful for teaching us rebuking us, correcting us, training us in righteousness, in right living. And we pray that your word would do its work for your glory. 
Amen. Okay, this is for everyone, children and adults. Are you ready? Um, I've got some choices for you. So put a hand in the air, which one uh, you like more. So summer or winter? So hands in the air for summer. Winter. Oh, there's a few winters. Okay, swimming pool or sea? So swimming pool, sea. Oh, lots more sea. Um, cold drink or ice or cold ice cream? So cold drink, cold ice cream. Definitely a winner on the ice cream. Right, a bit more serious now. Okay, ready? Right or wrong? So right or wrong? Not a single wrong. Okay. Uh, easy or hard? Easy? Hard? Okay, there's a bit of both there. What about when the easy choice is the wrong choice, and the hard choice is the right choice. Here in Genesis chapter 14, there's so much going on. Okay, there's a, there's a war, there's an international crisis, there's a battle of the kings, there's defeat, captivity, Lot taken off as a prisoner of war, there's a daring rescue. But all of this is really background, I think, to the heart of the passage, which is a choice for Abraham. And it happens when he returns victorious, and two kings come out to meet him. So verse 17, the king of Sodom, have we got this the right way around? Where are we? Yep, verse 18, the king of Salem. And Abraham has a choice. How is he going to respond to each of these? Because each of these represent a path to blessing. We're going to see that one offers the easy path, which is a wrong path. And the other offers a harder path, but it's the right path. As we saw last week, all the way through these chapters, 12 to 25, there's two big themes going on. So the promises of God and the question, is God faithful? Is God a faithful God? And particularly here, as, as a lot has been captured. And the other one is the theme of the faith of Abraham. In the New Testament, Abraham is held up as a model of faith. And the question is, what does real faith look like? And this choice we're going to look at today is to show if Abraham is trusting God or not. Well, let's have a look at what leads to the meeting of Abraham and the two kings. So, verses 8 and 9 as the little five got ready to face the big four, I wonder how they felt. I suspect they felt something like what Shamrock Rovers might feel if they were in a match against Man City. Or Peppa Pig and Georgie Pig against the Avengers. The little five must have heard the reports. And if if there was uh, TVs and news apps back then, this would have been the headline, the top of every feed. Look, verse 5. So the Raphites defeated, Zazites defeated, Emites crushed. Verses 6 and 7, Horites, Amalekites, Amorites defeated. And now it's the little five's turn to face them. 
And verse 10, the inevitable happens. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. But the reason that this battle is recorded at all is because of verse 12. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. The question is, is God a faithful God? Yes. Last week we saw Lot chose to live outside of the land of blessing in the wicked land of Sodom. And we might want to go, well, you know, you deserve to face these consequences. But God had said to Abram that he would bless him and his family. You remember at this stage, Abraham has no sons. He's got one nephew, Lot. And now Lot is a prisoner of war. And so news reaches Abraham, verse 13. And what he does next is extraordinary. Verse 14. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and (coughs) and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Abraham gathers together a few hundred men. We, We see by the end of the passage also some of his allies come. And he goes after the superpower. And, well, the little five versus the big four, if that was like Shamrock Rovers v. Man City, Abraham going after the big five is probably like, I don't know, you and your friends who have a kick around going off to play Man City. Here, here, though, is a man truly trusting the promises of God. Remember back in verse 12, God had said to him, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Well, here is real faith. Abraham believes what God says, and he takes real action. Where do you and I, we we know the promises of God. We know what God's word says on something. And we know it means we need to act a certain way. Will we trust God? Will we do it? Even if it's scary? Well, if what Abraham does is extraordinary, the result is even more so. Look at verse 15. During the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lots and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. Against all the odds, victory. Because God's promises are true. God is a faithful God. Anyone here ever met a king? No? A queen? Prince or princess? Oh, okay couple of hands, um, a president, oh, a few more, intriguing, um, or just someone famous, yeah, a few, okay, well, when you meet someone important, 
You know, sometimes it can make you feel important. But did it change your life? Probably not. As Abraham returned home, he meets not one but two really important people who come out to meet him. Two kings. Verse 17, after Abraham returned from defeating Ketalema and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava. That is the king's valley. It's probably not far from Jerusalem. Then, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, for Abraham, this could have been the moment. Could it? The moment that changes Abraham's life, going from a a traveling nomad to the king of a great nation, as he'd been promised by God. Because Abraham faces a choice between two different paths to blessing, between trusting God and going his own way and relying on himself, between associating with righteousness or wickedness. Because the king of Salem is the king of righteousness. That's actually what Melchizedek, the name means. It means literally king of righteousness. And the king of Sodom, well, he's the king of wickedness. Do you remember we saw that last time? Chapter 13, verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And Abram needs to choose wisely. Well, we're going to look at each of the kings. Here's the first. The king of Salem, righteousness, and the hard choice. Now, when you come to Melchizedek, like, he's just such a strange character, isn't he? really mysterious, actually. Where does he come from? Well, no idea except that we're told that he's from Salem, um, which is uh, really Jerusalem, which means peace. But, you know, how is it possible that this guy who doesn't seem to be related to Abraham knows the true God, is a priest of the true God? We've no idea. Where does he disappear to after this? We've no idea. Actually, the reason why we know so little about him is deliberate. In the New Testament, we're told that this fact that he's got so few facts about him points to truths about Jesus. We're told that Melchizedek, well, he's a different kind of priest. He's not like the Levitical priests, the other Old Testament priests, who all had to be descended from the same family. He seems to have no ancestors. It's as if he lived and will live forever. Melchizedek is also a priest, we're told, uh, who is a king of righteousness, of peace. And you get to the New Testament and it says Melchizedek is like a picture that's been painted that points to a reality of who Jesus really is. Because Jesus, like Melchizedek, is a king of righteousness, of peace. He's the forever priest who gives us eternal access to God. But this picture of Melchizedek isn't really the main thing that's going on in Genesis 14. So let's go back to Genesis 14 and Melchizedek. There's lots we don't know about him, but look at what we do know. So verse 18 again, he's Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Salem. He brought out bread and wine, and he was priest of God most high. 
He's a priest, which means he's a representative of God Most High, the one true God. And he represents righteousness and peace. He brings blessing, physical blessing. So to Abraham and his victorious band, obviously tired, he brings physical blessing, bread and wine. He brings spiritual blessing, verse 19. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. See, Melchizedek explains, how is it that Abraham and his few hundred were able to defeat the might of Ketelema? It's because God Most High delivered the enemy. It's a gift from God. Melchizedek reminds Abraham that the path of blessing is to trust in the promises of God, to receive provision from God. We'll see in a bit that this is actually a hard choice, a harder choice. Let's look at the second king, the king of Sodom, of wickedness and the easy choice. You see, this king is very different. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. There's no food. There's no blessings. There's no thanks. Um, Children, adults, you can tell me this as well. Any of you been to one of those big adventure playgrounds? Yeah? Yeah, I can see a hand or two. Um, I was at a massive adventure playground with my family a few years back. And they had these walkways and rope bridges like way up in the trees. And they didn't really have sides to the, to the walkways. They just had a net sort of below. And uh, we, were, we were enjoying this. And then we spotted a child, I reckon two or three, up on one of the walkways on our, on our own, trembling. No sign of the parents anywhere. So I ran, went up the ladders, across the walkways, over to this child, and picked her up in my arms. At this point, we'd spotted the mother who had noticed at this, this stage. And so I took the child all the way back down the ladders, down to the ground. I was met by the father who'd finally turned up. He took the child out of my hands, and he walked off. Not a word. The king of Sodom is a bit like that with Abram. Abram's just rescued his people and all his possessions. And what does he say? Well, literally, apparently, this is how it goes. He says, give me my people, take property for yourself. And you might think, well, what's wrong with that? That's quite a good offer for Abram, isn't it? Because Abraham was victorious in, in those days, that would have meant his, it was his right to keep all that he had received. So, so what's the king of Sodom doing then? Well, I, I think what's going on here is he's scheming. He's thinking, if it looks like I give my property to Abraham, then he'll associate with me and we'll be in alliance, allies. And for Abraham, it must have been tempting. Here's the fast track easy route to blessing, to riches, to recognition as a significant person, as a king, to becoming a great nation. 
What does Abraham do? Verse 22, he says, no way. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will not accept, uh, sorry, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the throng of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. The king of Sodom is actually trying to rob God of his glory. Abram says, I've made a promise to God not to let you or anyone else take credit for making me rich. God alone will do that. God alone deserves the credit. And so Abraham chooses not to associate with the king of wickedness, not to take the easy path to blessing, but the harder path as he associates with the king of righteousness and as he continues for, to wait for God to bless. And the proof that he associates with the king of righteousness? Well, let's see, end of verse 20. Do you see it there? Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He, he gives Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils of the victory. Why? It's a sign he recognizes Melchizedek is truly from God. That what Melchizedek says is true. God alone delivers. And that all blessing, Abram's blessing, is a gift from God. And the one-tenth is a way of sort of honoring God, of associating not just with Melchizedek, but with Melchizedek's God. And so after these meetings, Abram returns back to his tents, still owns no land, still limited in terms of earthly status and wealth, willing to wait. God's provision, God's fulfillment of God's promises, unwilling to compromise. Today, if you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, we face the same choice. Will we choose to associate with the King of Righteousness, Jesus, and take the harder path, or the King of Wickedness? which is really choosing things or associating with people that take us away from Jesus. And maybe it's easier, but it's wrong. For some of us here today, maybe we, we know that choice only too well. We know how hard it is. We have struggled and failed to make that choice. So maybe we think, you know, you just have no idea what it's like, how hard it is. Well, Jesus does. 2,000 years later, when he came to fulfill God's promises, he came knowing he was going to have to give not just a tenth, but his whole life. And then, the king of wickedness, the devil, shows up. And he takes Jesus onto a mountaintop and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. All the splendor of them. And he says, you want an easier route to get riches, to get blessing, to get power? You just have to join me. You just have to worship me. And like Abraham, Jesus says, no way. 
He says, worship God alone. And if we're Christians, we should be so grateful that Jesus chose the hard path, the righteous path, that he didn't associate with wickedness. Because our king of righteousness and his choice brought us peace, deliverance from our enemies, from sin and its consequences. It means that today he is our eternal priest with us all the time. If last week we saw that real faith is living by faith in the promises of God rather than by sight, well, this week, real faith is about choosing what is right and trusting and waiting, even when it is hard. See, will we continue to trust God? Remember His great promises. Wait for His provision his fulfillment in his time. Will we stick with Jesus and trust him no matter how hard it is? Or will we take the easy path? I wonder what it is that tempts you that seems like an easier path to blessing. Do you think, well, blessing means getting through these exams or getting this assignment done, and so it's much easier just to cheat or to use AI? Or, or do we think, you know, blessing, well, that's just gratifying my desires, physical satisfaction. So I don't want to wait till I'm married or wait till heaven. It's easier to indulge now, the fantasies in our head, the images on our screen. Or do we think, well, blessing, it, it's more money now. So if it's possible to avoid tax, even if it's wrong, well, we do it. Or if it's possible to give to a good, good cause, well, we don't do it. Or if we think blessing means not getting into trouble or not losing popularity or getting that job where you just think it's easier to lie. Let me ask you, where do you want something so bad, some blessing that you don't want to wait? And you know you can get it, maybe you know that it's wrong to get it this way, that it's not trusting God, but you know that you can take it this easier way. Abraham chose to associate with Melchizedek. He said no to Sodom. Melchizedek reminded him that it was God who delivered him. That continuing to trust God would mean that God would bless him. Let us continue to draw close to Jesus, to associate with him. He has delivered us. Promise to give us a blessing that is, is so whole, so deep, so lasting that when we experience it, we'll realize that every little effort that we sort of do now to, to take in an easier way will look so grubby, so pathetic. Let's choose to keep following the one who's chosen us, to choose him, our King of peace and righteousness. Well, let me lead us in prayer.
Father, we want to thank you again for your word. We thank you for the model of Abraham, who at this point was uh, clearly a man of faith. He trusted in you and in your promises and in your timing and was unwilling to compromise, to associate with wickedness. And we pray that you would help us to do the same, but we also ask where we have failed that you'd help us to see again that Jesus has prevailed for us. That he, our king of righteousness, is also our king of peace. And as we look to him, would it stir us, encourage us, make us 